Great is the day that the Lord has made that we are able to gather together again and to look at what we began really two weeks ago on Sunday evening, but began last week looking at a different type of sermon series than what I'm used to doing. And so I say that just as a a warning for you and also just a request to be patient with me because I would much rather just preach verse by verse and look at the text and continue to move through it at the pace that Scripture sets for us. But I had a three-week constraint, so we have to work with our constraints. We began looking at how deception or telling lies is used in the book of Genesis to develop the bigger theme or the bigger picture. And I suppose if we introduce the text in that way, we should clarify what the bigger theme or the bigger picture is in Genesis. Genesis tells the story of God's blessing in creation and His promises to redeem humanity. It helps us when we look at Genesis to remember that it wasn't a one-off book, but that it was written alongside the first five books of the Bible. We call those first five books the Penta for five, the Pentateuch. And so this is often referred to in, in Scripture as the law or the word of Moses or the law of Moses. Well, what then is Genesis? Who is it written to? Well, if it is the law of Moses, that gives us some clarity already that this is a book that was not being delivered to the people that were living in this time of history, but that it was being given as an account of what had happened in the past to the people of Israel in the days of Moses as they were coming out of Egypt, out of slavery, as God was establishing His covenants with them at Mount Sinai. This is the prologue, if you will, to the Pentateuch. This is the before we got here. How did we wind up here? And that helps us to have some clarity as we approach some of the more difficult portions of narrative that take place. We should remember any time we are studying biblical narrative that this records what human beings did. It doesn't give us always an example that we should follow. Sometimes in the biblical narrative, we find Examples that we should avoid. And Abraham, although he is a father of the faith, a hero of the faith, even though he is the highlight in Hebrews chapter 11, when we look at what a hero of the faith is, Abraham is a man. He's flawed. He's not the hero of his own story. He's like me and like you. The only hero in our story would have to be God. He's the only one capable of redeeming us and delivering us. And and it's in His promises that we find what is so wonderful and great about God and what we can hold on to. Last week we looked at the promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Today we look at Abraham's lie. His deceit, his failure, his faltering faith. That should be an encouragement to all of us. Has your faith ever faltered? Have you ever fallen victim of doing what was expedient instead of doing what was right? This is a difficult message to deliver. Because as a young Okay, I almost called myself a young man and I saw your faces and I remembered I'm not allowed to say that. But younger than I was now, I think I would have called myself the king of lies. I've tried to think about why I was the way that I was growing up. Why did I lie so much? I tried to blame it on other people. Try to say, well, my parents taught me how to lie. And there's truth to that. My parents were always up to something deceptive or mischievous. or They, they taught all of me and my brothers, all three of my brothers, how to be deceptive. 
They taught me how to pull the wool over people's eyes. I, I learned how to be a good liar. And I think I even grew addicted to it. Even growing up, becoming 11, 12, becoming my own person, that point in life where I'm no longer just doing what my parents told me, I, I think I had a deep-seated kind of sense of insecurity that I, I believed that if I told the truth to my friends in school that they wouldn't like me for who I was or for where I came from. And I told so many lies. My dad was a carpenter. I thought that was something to be embarrassed of growing up. Not because he was a carpenter, but because as a king of the deceiver, he found ways to make money while lying in bed until 12 o'clock in the morning, coming down off of abusing drugs the day or the weeks before. That happens. I've never been around meth addicts. They always come down unless, if they can't get to it again. And so I thought that was something to be embarrassed of. Being as smart and as brilliant as I was in my youth, I've lost some of that brilliance. When I got to high school and friends asked what my parents did, I just told them my dad was a day trader. He just stayed at home and traded stocks. That's how he made his money. What a stupid lie. There are consequences to lying. I remember I didn't think I'd be unique enough if people knew that I was born in the same city that we were going to school in. I was born in Rogers, Arkansas. From a young age, I told people that I was born in Wisconsin and that's where my family was. I don't have any family that lives in Wisconsin. I don't know why I chose Wisconsin. I don't know what's in Wisconsin that was alluring to tell the lie other than the fact that I could paint other elaborate stories and memories from my youth that never happened to try and please the people that I was around. Lies have consequences. In junior college, Michelle and I were taking a speech class and we had to deliver a speech. And Michelle was on in my group, and we had to deliver a speech. And I remember it came up during that. Uh, Michelle said something, well, that's just how Yankees would behave. My mom was there and chuckled. What do you mean? So you can tell lies, but your parents know the truth. Michelle found out right there and then after dating for, was it two years, three years at the time? Like four years of friendship. Yeah. Like four, two years of dating. Four years of friendship, two years of dating that I wasn't from Wisconsin. I was around this kind of stuff my entire life. I wasn't the only one. My uncle told his girlfriend that he's now married to that he was colorblind. She found out after they had been married for 15 years, that after they were driving around to look at Christmas lights with the family, his innocent wife said, I feel so bad for you because you can't see all of the colors. And his mom said, what do you mean? Good. The truth will find you out. It's an example to avoid loved ones. And I want to try and convince you this morning that all lies stem from a lack of faith. We began this series by looking at the first lie present in Genesis chapter 3 when Satan comes as the serpent to deceive Eve. We identified four lies that came from that passage. Asking the question, is God good? Is God truthful? Is God righteous? And is God gracious? We'll use those four questions again this morning as we look at how Abraham fails in Genesis chapter 12, looking at verses 10, all the way through the first verse of chapter 13. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to our text this morning as we prepare to read, that you would read along with me as I read out loud. 
While you are doing that, we will pray and ask that God would help us not to deceive ourselves as we look at the text, but that He would grant us truth and understanding. Father in heaven, I come to you thankful for your ability to redeem us. And I want to pray, Lord, that you would make me a people worth redeeming, and I know that that's not possible. So I'm all the more thankful that you've done what you have done. But Lord, I do not ask that you would redeem us from the consequences of our actions in the sense that if we've lied, that people will trust us. Or I ask that you would redeem us from our own nature, that we would not keep on sinning against you. And as we look at your text, Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might be able to behold the wondrous truth found in your law. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The Bible says in verse 10, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai. Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, into Negeb. I said we would look at our text from the perspective of those first four lies. And the first one is, is God good? God is good. And all the time, there was a famine in the land. This is what prompted, and, and if you look at our text and you remember where we were last week, God has just made the first installment of the Abrahamic covenant. He has promised to Abraham to make him abound. He has promised to make him a great nation. He has secured this blessing with the assurance that God will bless those who bless Abram and curse those who curse him. But there's a famine. I have a question. Is it easier to trust God with eternity or the things that are far off than it is to trust Him with the things that are right now? If we believe that God is good, then our faith should take action in moving us to believe that God is good in the immediacy of our needs. That is, what is happening right now. In verse 10, as Abram prepares to leave and to sojourn in the land of Egypt, it is as if he is saying, God can take care of his future. God can bless him. God can do all of these things. But Abram's really the one that needs to take care of securing his next meal. Loved ones, God's going to take care of your next meal. I already peeked back in the fellowship hall. He's done a very good job of it so far. God's going to take care of your next meal. We have to trust God with the immediacy of our needs. There's three things I want to look at under this main header. 
First, that we should appreciate the limitations of human wisdom. We should appreciate the limitations of human wisdom. You all know I I struggle a little bit with this because I like good thoughts. I like reading good thoughts. I like thinking good thoughts. I like talking about good thoughts. Listen, good thoughts will only take you so far in your relationship with God because we have a faith-based relationship. Human wisdom isn't something to be despised, but it is something to set aside whenever God tells us to set it aside. Proverbs 3, 5 instructs us. We should be familiar with this verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Your understanding is limited to what you are capable of understanding. Your understanding can only go so far as your finite brain can comprehend. If you try to, sometimes I try to test myself sometimes and I'll, I'll get on Facebook and watch all of those reels that suck you in that you can't break away from because they consume all of your time. And I watch those Neil deGrasse Tyson or whoever he is, the astrophysicist that wants to talk about all these crazy uh, science nonsense and physics. And my brain's not made for all of that stuff. It's a true expression of faith. How do you understand these things that are so big? Obviously, there are some that have trained for it, and that's something to be admired. Uh, Speak to medical professionals, and the things that they understand about the body blow my mind. How do you understand these things? Some things we have to train for. But I'll tell you, every single person, because you are finite, that means that you are limited to your physical body. You can only see where you are at. You can only look at what is in front of you. You can't look at what cannot be seen. Your faith is what, what expands that vision, what expands that understanding, because it is in the things that we cannot comprehend that we are able to understand the very nature of God by trusting in His true word given to us to understand more than our limitations can possibly meet. Our faith failures, such as in the example of Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and then again in Genesis chapter 19, Genesis 16 as well, I believe. Our faith failures are the result of being unable or unprepared to trust God with the details of our everyday life. There is a lie that has infiltrated the minds of many believers, and that is simply that God is too big to be concerned with the little details in your life. Remember what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 6, he said, Why do you worry about what you wear? Why are you so preoccupied with what you're going to eat? Why are you so preoccupied with clothes and, and food and what you will drink? Why do you spend so much time thinking about food? Why are you so tied up in all of the intricate details? Jesus says, Look at the flowers. The flowers neither work nor toil, and yet they are adorned with more beauty and more blessing than than even Solomon in his temple. And if you can think back to Solomon's temple, it was so renowned that world leaders wanted to come to him to see what he had built and what God had provided for him. Look at the flowers, they're more beautiful than Solomon's temple. Look at the birds in the sky. They they neither reap, they neither sow, they, they don't harvest, they don't have barns to store up their grain, and yet, who feeds them? God cares about the details in your life, and loved ones, if we say that He is good, then we can say that He is good in the details of our life. There comes a point where we must set aside human wisdom if we are truly to grow with God. Second, one of the ways that we should be encouraged to trust God with the immediacy of our need is that we should avoid relying on past experiences for our faith today. You look back at verse 7 in Genesis chapter 12, when the Lord appeared to Abram and he said, gave him this blessing, Abram built an altar to the Lord that had appeared to him. 
This is just verse 7. We began reading, reading in verse 10. This is how close this is. Sometimes the issue with a faltering faith is not just that we are more likely to trust God with what is in the future than what is right now, but that we would rather depend on our closeness with God in the past than draw closer to Him in our need. Abram built an altar to God, and it seems that when there's famine in the land, he simply looked back to this moment as a securing element. Can the Lord provide for Abram? Can He provide for you? Listen, loved ones, our intimacy with God is not something that is going to be relegated to a past moment. If you're trusting your church camp salvation, if you're trusting a revival salvation, if you're trusting a moment of repentance in the past, it will not draw you closer to God when you need Him right now. What will is trusting Him with that need. You have an opportunity to draw closer to God when you need Him because our intimacy is so important with God. He's in the small things. And it's in the small things that we are able to delight that God cares for us. There is simply no detail of our lives that we cannot bring before Him. Third, picking up off of the second. Just like we can't rely on the future, we can't rely on the past. How do we rely on Him in the present? When things get hard... When famine strikes, when war breaks out, why is it that those are the times we are least likely to pray? Because we've got to get to work. We've got to roll our sleeves up. We've got to take the action. We've got to start doing what God wants us to do. Let me tell you something. When we don't pray, we say by our lives that we consider prayer to be supplemental and not fundamental. Prayer is the fundamental connection that we have to God to provide for us. Not only can we bring the small things of our life to Him, but it is our connecting point in trusting and developing faith when we need Him that He is there for us. God is good. He blessed Abraham. He established his covenant. And now that there is famine, Abraham needs to, what we should be pursuing, this isn't in the text because Abraham gives us the example not to follow. He gives us the example to avoid. What we should be doing, though, is rather than trusting God in the future or trusting what happened in the past, we should be pursuing him right now. Now, second... We'll look at Abraham's real failure. It wasn't just going into the land of Egypt. By the way, not the land God told him to go to. Look back at verse 1. He said, go from your country and I'll show you the land that I would show you. And Abram comes to the land of Canaan. That would become the promised land. But now because there's famine, he's going to leave for Egypt. And it gets worse. As they're about to enter Egypt in verse 11, Abram turns to his wife, who would have been about 65 or so, He says, you are so beautiful. I see how beautiful you are. Don't let people know that you're my wife. What a weird thing to say. Men, you got a beautiful wife. Do you ever say, don't let people know that you're my wife? Or do you say, would you like to put your wedding ring on before we go out? Why did Abram do this? The Egyptians had a high view of marriage and a high view of morality, and they wouldn't take another man's wife. That would be wrong, but that doesn't stop humanity. seems like humanity has mastered the art of quote-unquote obeying God's laws and getting what we want at the same time. This is what David did, isn't it? When he saw Bathsheba bathing on the, weight, on the roof, he, he sent his own best friend to the front lines with explicit orders to die. He told commanders to lead him into the front and then withdraw from him so that he will be overwhelmed. That way he can die and I can have his wife and there's no, no problem with that. God clarified for David, didn't he? 
And there are consequences David had to face. The child that him and Bathsheba had died because of infidelity. This is what Abram was afraid of. And, and so he said, don't let them know that you are my wife. He says, instead, tell them that you are my sister. Or was this a lie? No. Sorry is actually Abram's half-sister. They both have the same father, Terah. If you want to look at Genesis 20, verse 12, you can see that. But let's find out if this is a lie. Anything said with the motivation of deceiving someone is a lie. There's an adage that holds a lot of weight here. A half-truth is a whole lie. A half-truth is a whole lie. Abram didn't say, tell him that you're my sister because in fact she was. Abram said it so that it would go well with him. Isn't that what he says in verse 13? That it may go well with me because of you. Do we trust God with the whole truth? We trust Him in our need right now, but do we take this second lie that that, uh, Satan brought in the garden? Is God truthful? Do we trust the truth that God has set before us? Have we put on what Paul would write in Ephesians 6.14 is the belt of truth that holds on the entire embodiment of the, the, the armor of the people of God, the armor of God. As soon as we lay aside truth, it opens us up to all kinds of situations. One lie never ends with one lie. I gave you some examples in our introduction of some of the lies that I've told in the past, and and hopefully it makes sense how those things spin and get bigger and bigger over time as narratives are added to them to make the lie more realistic and more lively and more integral into who we are. One lie opens us up for all kinds of situations that we should have never have been in. The first job I ever had, because I was as lazy as my parents, wasn't until I was in college. I worked at the testing center at the college. And it was an awesome job. Do you know what you do at a testing center? You watch people take tests. My job was to check people in, make sure that they didn't have cheat sheets and cell phones and smart watches. And actually, if you want to figure out how old I am, I'll tell you I'm 30. But when I was in college, smart watches weren't a thing yet. And so there were all sorts of newsletters being sent out among testing centers about how these new devices could be used to cheat on tests. We didn't have anyone in the testing center. It was just me and my coworker Juan. And so we decided instead of taking our breaks separately, we would go together because we like spending time together. So we would lock up shop, go take a break, be back in 15 minutes before our next appointment. It wasn't necessarily anything wrong with what we did. We locked the doors. There were no appointments. We were returning shortly. Lo and behold, somebody showed up to the testing center while we were gone. And they called my boss and asked where we were at. We were there in 10 minutes, no problem, problem resolved. Later that day, I got a phone call from my boss asking where I was and said, I have no idea what what they're talking about. I don't know why I said that. That little bitty lie, I don't know what they're talking about. I knew what they were talking about. Let me tell you what that unfurled into. Apparently there were some other issues with Juan. Here's my first job, and I've got a meeting with HR. My first interaction with HR. I don't even think I talked to them whenever I was hired. I told them the truth eventually, but I waited too long to do it. I woke up one Friday morning to an email, details for the termination of Derek Austin Bremer. I got fired for lying to my boss about where I was. 
And it was a dumb lie that was inconsequential. And I would have fired me too. As soon as we lay aside truth, it opens the door for all kinds of situations that we have no business being involved in. Loved ones, we should ask, what is the right thing? What is the right thing to do? As we come across the situations, the immediate needs that we have in our life, we should ask, what is the right thing that is to be done right now? We should not ask, what is the expedient thing or or what will work in this situation? We should ask, what is the right thing? And, And while society may say that it's right for him and it's wrong for her, that there's this kind of relative relationship between truth, as Christians we say unabashedly, unashamed, with full confidence that it is the Word of God and the Word of God alone that defines the standard of righteousness. The Bible is what tells us what is right. Theodore Roosevelt said, Knowing what's right doesn't mean much unless you do what is right. We must trust the truth even when it seems like the situation won't work out for our best because it is the truth that guides us and it is the truth that we will ultimately be judged against whenever we see God. It will be the truth. 1 Peter 3.14 records, Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. The truth is our only hope. In circumstances where it might seem like it would be better for us to tell a little white lie as Christians, we must remember that it is our testimony that we are securing, that it's something much bigger than just what is in front of us, that it is a necessity that we seek God's truth in making decisions. God has told us the whole truth, and we must depend on that. The third question that Satan said in the garden, he asked, is God good? He said, is God truthful? And the third one, he said, is God righteous? Is he just? Will he judge righteously? Will he really uh, look at our indiscretions and judge us according to them? Loved ones, we should trust God with justice. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, The rock, speaking of God, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Abram may have been consumed with self-preservation. He may have been consumed with trying to figure out how he will survive as a sojourner in a foreign land, just as Christians today must survive as foreigners or resident aliens in the world. He may have been consumed with self-preservation, but his plan to deceive was an intentional thought. It was something that he had considered and contemplated, and as the plan is given birth and it's given to motion as he turns to his wife, seems as though he has forgotten the very blessing that God has given to him. Look how far away he has moved from this original blessing. When God says, I will bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you, I will curse. Does he trust God's righteousness? God, God desires that he would be the one that vindicates for us. Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 12, Do not repay evil for evil, for I will vindicate you, says the Lord. God is the righteous judge of the world. Abram recognized justice. The Egyptians recognized justice. He knew that they recognized justice. A half-truth is a whole lie. Even though they may result in in apparent blessings at first, as we look at what happens to Abraham or Abram in the text, 
Pharaoh dealt well with him for the sake of this woman. He, he gave to him sheep, oxen, this is in verse 16, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. It seems like this lie has paid off for Abram, doesn't it? There's some blessing that benefits for a short time, but listen, the benefits are never able to be fully enjoyed whenever they are gained by ulterior motives. People who gain from deception are never truly able to enjoy them. And I know this. I know this from experience. When my parents were were first divorced, my, my dad... His birthday's in a few days, by the way. I feel bad ragging on him right now. I love my dad. He is a good dad. He is a flawed human. There was a a sweet old lady that lived towards the lake. And she knew that my parents were getting divorced and that my dad didn't have the money to, to take care of us at Christmas time. And she handed my dad her credit card and said, get them whatever you want. I mean, just an incredible act of generosity. You think that would be enough? Not only did my dad take that credit card and get for us whatever he wanted to get for us, but he also took the keys to her storage unit and he unloaded everything that was valuable in that storage unit and sold it. My brothers and I were older at the time. We had to live with the guilt of knowing what my dad had done. Robbing an old, generous lady blind behind her back. I remember the first time she called me and asked if I knew what happened. And being trained, I said, I have no idea. While through deception there might be opportunities for us to make personal gain, we will never be able to enjoy them. Because it's God's justice that they would rot our very soul. That feeling of guilt, that feeling of dishonor, that wasn't put there by man. That wasn't put there because it's illegal. That wasn't put there because it's bad. That was put there by a God who in creation put a conscious mind inside of you that is able to discern right from wrong. Even the unsaved, even the world experience these feelings and they are God's justice upon the unrighteous. Look at God's justice. Verse 17 even though Pharaoh had done nothing wrong in his own eyes because he didn't know that Sarai was actually Abram's wife, what does God do as she is taken into his household? But it says that the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai. God's justice is carried out. It will be judged before God's standard of righteousness. Everything that takes place in this world will not be judged by what you think is right, but by what God says is right plainly. Not only is He truthful, but He is righteous. God's justice intervened in this situation as it sometimes does. Not always, but sometimes. He had previously promised to bless those who bless Abram and curse those who curse him. Despite Abram's failing, we find even in this passage an example of God's faithfulness to his original promise. This is something that we can take to heart. Just because you've messed up does not mean that God is not going to deal faithfully with you. Just because God is righteous in His judgments, even though He is discerning and knows all that there are no acts of deception that are far away from Him because He sees through them, God is faithful to His promises and He is faithful to you. 
think what is most striking in this passage. It's verse 18 when Pharaoh calls Abram to him and he says, What is this you have done to me? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Consider who is speaking. This is an unsaved. This is a Gentile. This is an unbeliever who does not know God rebuking the believer for his indiscretions, rebuking the father of faith for his acts of deception. Abram, who is supposed to be a blessing unto the whole world, is told, now then, here is your wife, take her and go. As you turn to verse 20, there's no response from Abram. He doesn't have anything to say. And here's the worst consequence of it all, that in his deception, his testimony has been so uh, damaged, there is nothing that he can say. Consider for the people of God that live like they are in the world. How that affects your testimony. What do you say to your friends whenever you say this is right or this is wrong? What do you say to your loved ones when by example you live the same way that they do? I believe our society excuses little white lies. Discretionary lies. As Christians, are we, not, are we not the stewards of God's truth? Are we not the ones placed in this world as a light to the world, that they might be able to see God's goodness working through us? The transformation of the Spirit, is it not given to us that the same conviction of sin that is upon all men would be even more prompting in our own life, that we would have such a view of truth that we would pursue it even when it doesn't make sense? God is good, God is truthful, and God is righteous. It's my last point. We can trust God with our tomorrow. Satan asked, is God gracious? When he tempted Eve in the garden, he said, the reason God doesn't want you to eat from that particular tree is because He knows that you would become like God. He's withholding goodness from you. After being rebuked by Pharaoh, Abram simply leaves. There's nothing else to be said. He's damaged and confused his testimony. He's confused the entire testimony of the people of God in Egypt. We can trust God with our tomorrow. I did not learn to be truthful from my parents. And I know that my children will not learn to be truthful by hearing a lecture. They will learn to be truthful by observing a lifestyle. The people of this world will not see anything different in the church so long as there is nothing different inside of it. I'll tell you when everything changed for me. When everything really got turned around. When I was 18, there was a murder that took place in Missouri. The man who was murdered was Jack McCain. He was someone that my dad spent a lot of time with. He was a car dealer. And he had a car dealership uh, that was up there in Missouri in the boonies, filled with cars. I've already told you my dad was a carpenter. I've already told you that my dad was dishonest. At the time, the price of scrap metal was pretty high, and you could get about $500 if you took a car and had it crushed at the recycling center. So my dad just got to work because Jack McCain was just an old man that lived in Rogers and didn't drive up to Missouri to see all of his cars. One lie leads to another. When Jack McCain was shot dead on the side of the road in Missouri, the police were at my house that very night.
They banged on the door. Me and my brother watched from his bedroom window. The entire neighborhood was covered with police cars. Missouri State Troopers, Arkansas State Troopers, uncovered cars, Broders PD. The lights were flashing. A few weeks later, I was in school. I got pulled out of class in high school to sit in the counselor's office with a Missouri State Trooper, an investigator from the FBI, and someone else, I can't remember who, to be asked about where my dad was. Remember a few years later looking back at some of the public record documents and I was listed as a witness in the case as, um, I can't remember, what's the word that they use? Adversarial, confrontational, something like that. Because I was hostile, that's right, I was a hostile witness. Because even in that small little interview, I was deceptive. And they could see through it. That's not what changed my view of truth. It was a few years later when my dad was arrested on the charges of first-degree murder. And this is something you won't see when you read newspaper articles of people that have done bad things. Uh, when five news post stories of a murderer arrested in Rogers and you read the comments, what a despicable man, give him the chair, all of these things, you don't read the family's perspective. Because I knew my dad was dishonest. I knew my dad had done things he shouldn't have done. I knew that one lie worked its way out of control. At the end of the day, I know more than I'd like. But is the truth enough? Is it enough to trust God's righteousness with situations? Is it enough to trust God with tomorrow? Isaiah 30 verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for Him. When my dad was arrested, it broke my heart. I was scared. I was afraid of the trouble that I might be in from the part that I played in lying about where my dad was. And I decided then and there, with Michelle sitting alongside me, that truth would be what guides my life. She had already found out about me not being from Wisconsin. That was an innocent lie that didn't hurt anyone. It's fun to laugh at. But I decided that honesty and integrity weren't just virtues to be praised. They weren't just things that the NYPD writes on the side of their uh, toy, toy cars. But they're the way that God wants us to live. Because even when the situation looks like God's not going to be able to pull through for us, we know who this God is that we serve. He is a good God who tells us the truth, who is just and righteous, and is the one who takes vengeance upon our enemies for us. He is the one that rewards us and blesses us. He is gracious towards us, giving us more than we possibly deserve. I don't know where you're coming from this morning. I don't know what is in your past. I don't know how many times your faith has been tested and faltered in the, in, the, in the face of trials and situations and consequences. But I urge you this morning to trust the truth, not just the truth that is in the Bible, but the truth of your own life, the truth of integrity. I urge you to be honest of your need for a Savior. 
Because it is only through honestly reckoning with our past that we are able to see that we are, with the song we sang this morning, as the thief upon Christ, I can't remember the lyrics exactly, but as the thief looked forward to the day with Christ, we are more vile than he. And it is embracing that truth that we are able to come to the Father with a heart that says, I need you. Because I wasn't taught how to be honest. I wasn't taught how to be truthful. I wasn't taught how to glorify you with my life. So Lord, I depend on you. I'm not relying on some past experience where I said you are my faith and my faith alone. But I'm relying on you right now in this moment to guide me. To secure my next step. While I may not know what the consequences are, while I may not know with what comes next or what will follow if I tell the truth, what friends will disown me, what family members will discredit me, I trust you. Because my story is not my own. Lord, you are the author of my story because you are the one that has redeemed me. I remember your promises, Lord. And I trust in them now. We must trust God with our immediate needs the same way that we trust Him with our future. We cannot rely on a past event to sustain our relationship with God. We must live with Him today. We should allow the Word of God to be our only standard of right and wrong. And we should rest in God's ultimate justice rather than bringing it about on our own. We look forward to whatever God will bring. And ultimately, in his promises for tomorrow. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. The way that it guides us, it instructs us. God, I pray that we would seek you. That we would, that we would pursue honoring you. And Father, I pray that we would respond to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me?